This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Remember the Toronto 18 terror plot that was thankfully discovered and prevented by the authorities? The conspirators were planning to detonate truck bombs in downtown Toronto and to storm Parliament, take hostages and behead the Prime Minister, then Stephen Harper. Well, the architect of that plot, Sharif Abdelhalim, has just been granted day parole. This, despite the fact that the Correctional Service of Canada recommended against letting him out. This was a decision by a parole board, apparently, after he told them that he would be a model citizen. What do you think of that? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and a former strategic analyst at CSIS and Andrew House, who is counsel and co-lead for the National Security Group at Faskin Law. And Andrew worked on the anti-terrorism file for the federal attorney general in 2006 when the Toronto 18 were arrested. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Thanks for having us. Okay, let us begin with Andrew House. Uh, You know this file intimately. What's your reaction to this? Well, look, I think it's fair to to first of all acknowledge the parole board uh, doesn't have an easy time of it, but at at the same time, Putting public safety first has not always been a characteristic of the decisions of the board, and this has created a real tension through the years. It's, it's an independent institution of the federal government, which means no minister of the crown, no prime minister can tell them what decision to make. They can make appointments to that board, and then you hope that the people who serve on that board uh, serve with public safety at the top of their list. There are, are other values, rehabilitation uh, a, a, a redemptive uh, track to someone's life. But you hope that, that first and foremost is the idea that people who have offended cannot be permitted to offend again. And this is always the challenge in, in, in the decisions of those, uh, of those charged with being parole board members. Well, you know, sh- shouldn't those two things not be mutually exclusive? If somebody is on track to rehabilitation, then uh, public safety is not at, at risk. I mean, are are you um, dismayed by this decision, Andrew? So let's acknowledge that 14 years uh, is a long time. It should be enough time uh, for someone to, to change their ways. But, you know, I've seen over and over again examples Unfortunately, where the the possibility of rehabilitation doesn't mean the probability or the certainty of it. And this is what makes these decisions so critical uh, and so difficult. I am really bothered uh, by the fact that the Correctional Service of Canada, which these are the people, these are the the, the, uh, correctional officers and supervisors and personnel who have the best opportunity to observe the inmate 
day to day, hour by hour, that they were opposed to this. I, I really would like to know more uh, about why they were opposed. I think the the public has a right to hear these details, uh, and I just don't feel like we've heard enough. Why why was the correctional service opposed? And in the face of that, why did the parole board override that wish and grant uh, what what is day parole? This is not full parole. But still, uh, it puts the person in circulation, and that is a problem. Phil, what do you make of it? Well, I really like Andrew's comments, Libby. And just for your listeners' context, I was actually at CSIS when the Toronto 18 started way back in the summer of 2005, all the way up to the arrest in 2006. I've interviewed several of them in in a prison setting. Uh, I've written six books on terrorism in Canada around the world. And I think what worries me is exactly what Andrew said. The people that are responsible for making what are really tough decisions, and I, I, I want to, you know, recognize that you don't, you know, you're making a judgment call on someone's releaseability, uh, rate of recidivism into society, and that can't be an easy thing to make. The professionals are saying he's not ready, and yet someone overrides that. That worries me as someone, Libby, who had worked on Islamist extremism for 15 years at CSIS. I understand the mindset. I understand why these guys are going to do what they want to do. And yet we've got a guy who was part of a plot to detonate three one-ton fertilizer bombs in the heart of Toronto and probably in Trenton, the air base for the, was sort of the, the taking off and landing part for the Afghan mission for the better part of the 2000s and 2010s. This guy is now going to have some degree of freedom. And I don't think Canadians are comfortable with that. I'm, I'm certainly not. I have, there's nothing that I've seen, Libby, to suggest that this individual, despite his Remonstrations to the contrary, thinks differently today than he thought back in 2005, 2006. And that, to me, is the bottom line. Um, did you ever interview people uh, who talked about him? Uh, I'm assuming you, you haven't interviewed him himself. He, no, not Abdelhim in, in particular, though I did interview uh, four other members of the Toronto 18 plot and walked away with varying degrees of comfort in terms of, you know, had they seen the error of their ways kind of thing. The bottom line for me, though, is that, you know, is 14 years enough uh, in prison for an individual who wanted to kill and maim hundreds, if not thousands, of Canadians? And I think the answer is no. And let me turn the question on its head. Would Canadians be okay if Paul Bernardo got out tomorrow? Or Mark Lapine, who slaughtered 14 women back in 1989, you know, in his anti-feminist crusade? Would would be okay with that? To the best of my knowledge, only two members of the Toronto 18 are still serving their sentences the two leaders, uh, and the rest are either completely out or are on, as, as Mr. House suggests, some kind of a, a day parole uh, restriction. I don't know that I'm okay with that. I don't think the most Canadians are okay with that. Well, it, it's interesting. You know, I read through um, a report on what he told the parole board in in a three-hour meeting, and he seemed to, uh, it's, it sounded like a very sophisticated individual who knew exactly what to say. He was, uh, you know, even inventing words. I mean, th- apparently this is a quote. I know that you're taking a risk and this is going to be highly mediatized. That's a great new word, but 
obviously this guy knew exactly what to say and and he apparently was a, a very well-off professional software engineer when all of this happened and he said you know i thought my life was useless and i embraced this and boy i was so wrong it just sounds like you know here's here's a guy who knows exactly what to say i don't know him uh, i can't see into his heart but uh i mean um and, is that is that a, a wrong conclusion from all of this? No, it's not. Uh, you know, Abdul Halim was an interesting exception to what was an erroneous assumption by many people that only people who are down and out, marginalized, not well educated, economically, you know, not well off, are the ones that embrace Islamist extremism or terrorism. He was a guy with a six-figure salary. I believe he drove a BMW. He was a very successful man who happened to have a father who also shared his views, by the way, a religious scholar. And I think you may have a point there, Libby. I think maybe he's saying what people want to hear to convince them that, yeah, he's seen the light of day and no longer poses a threat to society. Does he? I don't know. I don't know that Abdul Halim still thinks exactly the same way he does back in 2005. But my argument here is that I'm not sure that, you know, a life sentence... (laughs) should be mitigated to 14 years. I, I don't know that that's the right way of looking at things. Andrew may, may disagree with me. He's got a different experience than I do. I just don't know what it takes for an individual to actually renounce in his heart of hearts and his mind of minds um, the very ideology that led him to act in the first place. I don't know what, what, what guarantee we need as a society that, that keeps us safe and, and provides some kind of a surety that, in fact, he may not reoffend or, you know, re-engage in similar activity down the line? Uh, I mean, I don't know what evidence there is uh, about all of these de-radicalization programs. I, I, I don't think that their success rate is that high. Andrew House? So people really struggled with uh, with a whole counter-radicalization agenda. Um, many people claim to do it. I'm not certain that, that many people do it well. I don't even think there's an accepted body of literature on how to do it. And what you see in the Canadian prison system uh, are people who are coming to their statutory release date who are being released in, into society uh, who are still radicalized. And, and uh, you know, you, you see evidence of this famously, uh, the case of Carlos uh, Larmond, who, who uh, exactly. you know, released in, in 2019 uh, when he was still deemed a high risk to public safety. You know, he had not changed his ways. He had not changed his views. Remind and us remind us of that case, please. So uh, Mr. Larman was someone who wanted to travel to join ISIS, which became an offense uh, in, in, uh, in the latter stages of the conservative government. It was an offense to make an attempt to travel to join and support ISIS, the, the, the act of traveling. And this is what he was convicted of, and he served time. Uh, but was released in 2019, even though prison officials uh, uh, knew that, that he had not expressed remorse for what he had attempted to do. Uh, and, and, you know, that really is, I think, at the heart of the problem is how do we deal with people uh, in the prison system who are not being rehabilitated? And what's worse, uh, an environment where people um, tend to radicalize even more if that is their predisposition. They, they meet like-minded people in the prison system. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's that's a critique from the left and the right about prisons. Uh, it, is the, it is the best system we have at present. But the struggle for multiple governments has been, how do we do better at making sure that people get access 
uh, to the right programs in the prison environment, or at least are separated from others who are going to further radicalize them. And by the way, not just about their mental state, about their knowledge, about their capability. And as Phil will tell you, you know, when someone is radicalizing to violence, the the way that that CSIS looks at this is not only their their desire, but their capability. And when desire and capability intersect, this is where you have a dangerous situation. And and one of the goals uh, of... um, of, of the, uh, the, the the Toronto 18 was to was to storm Parliament, which in fact was a scenario that played out horribly in 2014. Yep. You know, so this is where this becomes really ominous. If this had played out uh, back in 2006, it would have been our 9/11, and you know, thank goodness it was stopped. And and you know, I can remember one of my first jobs in government uh, was tracking this file as it, as it progressed its way after the arrests. And just seeing the the incredible coordination of our intelligence service and law enforcement across Canada and the litany of people involved in stopping this, thank goodness they were there and people like Phil were at the front line to make sure it did not happen. Okay. Um, I'm going to give the numbers out again because we do have a few minutes left. And I think Phil brought up a very good question. Should a life sentence mean 14 years for somebody who was going to do something so heinous. Let's take a call from Pat. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon. I just looked at the um, information on the parole board, and um, the interesting aspect is that the per diem pay is between six fifty-five and $770 a day. I'd be very curious to know whether these go to members of the political party in power at the time. Uh, my suspicion is it does. Um, but it, it's a very there's some very interesting information on here, such as, and this is just on the internet, uh, Government Canada, a day in the life of a parole board member. Um, but I just I, I just look at this and say mm, it'd be very interesting to know what the criteria that are used to uh, appoint members to the board. Okay, uh, that's a good question, Pat. Thanks. Uh, yeah, and uh, it depends, I guess, when they were appointed. I mean, I think generally speaking, whatever government is in power appoints their friends to these uh, kind of cushy appointments uh, and, uh, you know, not necessarily with professional qualifications. Uh, do either of you want to comment on that? I will quickly. Um, one thing we we did at CSIS when I was there, Libby, was to actually brief parole board members on a regular basis on things like radicalization and terrorism. So they had a better understanding of what this thing was about. And very quickly on de-radicalization, your listeners may be interested. I'm actually hosting a webinar next week at the University of Ottawa on a new book on which I was a co-author on de-radicalization. And uh, I'm not surprisingly rather skeptical. For the reasons Andrew mentioned, it's not well understood. There's a program a minute around the world. There is no effective effective way to measure whether de-radicalization works. And so it's a great idea in principle, but does it actually achieve what you're, you want it to do? And there's more questions than answers at this point. Yeah, and 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 again, you know, uh, uh, it can be very hard to tell who's sincere and who's not sincere, who spins exactly. a good tale and who doesn't. Exactly. Um, so I just want to before before we wrap up, get get back to the question of overriding a recommendation from Corrections Canada. I mean. What would possess them to do that, Andrew? I mean, you you said you'd like more information about that, but um, I just I just need more on that. 
so sometimes this comes down to to uh, weighing the credibility of the individual in the room, and this is why we we have a legal system where where the you know the the trier of fact gets to look at someone, the judge gets to eyeball someone and and figure out if they're being sincere or not. Now the problem is, and, and there is literature on this, humans aren't very good at weighing the honesty of other humans, and and you know the parole board. They're humans as well. And, and you so know what? Sorry can... to interrupt, but this, Please. I think, was a virtual hearing, so you didn't even have the person in front of you. Well, I mean, this this has been a problem recently, including access for the press and victims uh, because of COVID-19. These are legitimate concerns. The parole board, I'm sure, is doing their level best, uh, but but it does make it more difficult uh, anytime you add on a complexity like that. I wouldn't mind going back to something that, that, that Pat just mentioned, if it's okay, Sure. It is interesting. The the appointment uh, is done by the federal cabinet. The the common perception would be that you do appoint your friends. I'd actually make the contrary argument when it comes to the parole board. Appointing your political friends to an independent body where you can't discipline them in any way. You can't tell them they've made a bad call. You're not allowed to do that. Um, that is highly problematic. And so I think government's have tried to do a better job of picking people who are actually qualified. There's an exam involved, and and uh, and it's a tough exam, by the way. The problem is, you once once someone has been appointed, uh, they do bear the the mark of that political stripe of government. They go forward, they make these decisions in an independent fashion, and sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes public safety is not the paramount value. You sit there and listen to someone for three hours. They're convincing. They've been in for a long time. And I think there is sort of a, a, a grinding down or, or a, a desire to try to see the best in people. That's very laudable. It's just not always the right call. And, and luckily, in the case of this individual, a life sentence, that means that he will always in some way be under the jurisdiction of the parole board and of the system. And if he if he steps out of line, reaches those conditions, there is the possibility of simply bringing him back in, and and that that is one safeguard, probably the best safeguard in this situation. Hmm. Unless they lose track of him. Anyway, let's let's hope that it works out well. Uh, but thank you so much for your insight on this uh, really interesting conversation. Thank you, Andrew House and Phil Gursky. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Andrew. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.